Good morning and welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We're a spiritual community dedicated to the free search for truth and meaning, and we're glad that you're here. We come from a long heritage of faith communities that teach that there is a spark of the divine in every human being. It is in the spirit of that heritage that I ask you to greet the holy in our midst by turning to the person to your right and left and welcoming them here this morning. Will you say with me the words by which we light our chalice? In the light of truth and the warmth of love, we gather to seek, to find, and to share. Good morning. I'm Marcia Sharp, your lay leader this morning. Our call to worship is entitled, The Work of Christmas by Howard Thurman. When the song of angels is stilled, when the star in the sky is gone, when the kings and princes are home, when the shepherds are back with their flocks, the work of Christmas begins to find the lost, to heal the broken, to feed the hungry, to release the prisoner, to rebuild the nations, to bring peace among the brothers, and to make music in the park. A lot of people are curious about how a whole room full of people with roots in every major world religion, including atheism, secular humanism, uh, spiritual humanism, neo-paganism, how can we all be in the same room and worship together? What holds us together? And the answer can be long or short, depending on where you are and who it is who's asking. But one of the things that holds us together, that guides us as we run our race, is the mission statement that we wrote and put it on the wall, and we say it together every Sunday. We gather in community to nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice. Now is the time in our service when we enter the wise silence together. We breathe into that place where we are who we are. We seek the stillness that is in that deep and small place. It is in this stillness, that we might acquire wisdom and clarity. It is by practicing the stillness that we might acquire compassion, that we might become people who actually listen to the words of the great teachers and do them rather than celebrating them only and act as if what they said doesn't matter. May we learn in this place how to have compassion for the suffering and how to deeply enjoy our lives. Let us enter the silence together.
So we're all here in the middle of the swirl of a 21st century Christmas. And I wanted to talk about how Christmas got to be the way it is right now. It wasn't always that way. First of all, we're all pretty much sober as far as I can tell, which... would not have been the case during the early centuries of its celebration. In Europe, um, bands of beggars, and sometimes the young adults from the well-to-do families even, would, would roam the streets singing a wassail song like, um, Christmas is coming, the goose is getting fat, please put a penny in the old man's hat. If you haven't got a penny, a halfpenny will do. If you haven't got a halfpenny, then God bless you. And you can sing it in a round, which I imagine is easier at the beginning of your wassailing. And these roaming bands of uh, beggars basically would go rap on the doors of the middle class houses and rap on the fancy doors of the posh rich houses and stand out there demanding uh, food and sometimes money and always alcohol. Wassail, wassail, is alcohol. And so people would bang on your door and you'd hand out money and you'd pour drink in their glasses and, um, and, the, and the streets were just, that's where Christmas was celebrated, in the streets. Where in the world did roaming bands of beggars get the nerve to bang on people's doors and ask for can? wait a minute, that's Halloween, um, And ask for alcohol. We go caroling now, but we don't normally demand alcohol um, from the houses that we carol in. You know, we're like, we go in the hospitals and the nursing homes, and we're like, hey, do you have any? Uh... And the roving bands of beggars didn't do this at all times of the year. They just did this at Christmas time. And so what in the world was going on? Well, it's an ancient, ancient pagan tradition of the normal social rules being upended, turned on their heads, during this time of the celebration of light return, the celebration of Christmas. The reason for that is that in the Roman Empire, at this time of year, there used to be a huge celebration called Saturnalia, uh, celebrating the harvest god and the return of Sol Invictus the invincible sun, the unconquerable sun. And people would celebrate for a week. All the social norms were relaxed. Gambling in the Roman Empire was frowned upon, but during Saturnalia, it was fine. Uh, the wearing of sober and dignified togas was the rule for men in the streets. Uh, during Saturnalia, you could wear your dressy, dinner, sparkly clothes. Uh, it didn't matter. The people who had slaves would sit their slaves down to a meal that was like the one the masters normally ate. Sometimes in some households, the masters and slaves would eat together during Saturnalia. Sometimes the masters would serve the slaves for Saturnalia. There was a custom that the slaves during this time were allowed to speak frankly to the masters, but I'm guessing the slaves, being pretty intelligent, most of them, uh, would go, uh, I could speak frankly, but this is going to be over in like three days and... You're not that drunk, so. 
It was a good time for Harvest Festival. The winter was a time when uh, the agricultural work was pretty much done. There was plenty of food because the harvest had just come in. There was plenty of beer and cider, and it was a time of, of overindulgence. Now, when the Emperor Constantine decided that he was going to turn the Roman Empire Christian, he and the bishops were conferring about how best this should happen. Now, should they start all new celebrations? No. Everybody who's starting a new religion knows that you want to take things people are already doing and just rebrand them. And so since the people were used to having a huge celebration on Saturnalia, they, they loved it, it, it was called the best of times, um, they would just take this and say, okay, now we're celebrating Jesus' birthday and the return of the Son, the unconquerable Son of God. And so people, you know, they were like, okay, and um, as long as they got to keep celebrating, they were all right. So the topsy-turviness was still part of the celebration centuries later. And um, the Puritans, though, in the United States, they didn't much care for reveling. Uh, they did not care for drunkenness. And so they didn't much care for Christmas. In fact, they outlawed it. Not Christmas itself, but a celebration. You were supposed to revel, I don't know, in a dignified, uh, refined, kind of reserved way. You could revel inside your heart, but it shouldn't really reach your face. They made the celebration of Christmas illegal. So anyone who was not a Puritan, who was living amongst the Puritans, if you tried to make merry, you got slapped with a big fine, which took some of the merriment away. Culturally, uh, even after it stopped being illegal in the later 1700s and early 1800s, it was still taboo. You wouldn't really... Uh, they wouldn't let their children play with your children if you made too mar merry during the Christmas time. You had, to, you had to have a quiet Christmas. You had to keep it in your house. It uh, was not in the streets in New England uh, during the 16th, 17th, 1800s. It was not in the streets. It was in the home, and uh, you were more righteous if it wasn't even in your home, really. You could probably make a little, you know, give a walnut to the child or something. In 1870, the federal government declared it a national holiday. Now, how did we get from it being taboo and frowned upon to celebrate Christmas to it being declared a national holiday? What happened in between there? Queen Victoria and Prince Albert happened. That's who. Queen Victoria and Prince Albert were the cool kids of their day. And Prince Albert was from Germany. He had a kind of a Nordic Viking-influenced tradition of bringing an evergreen in because the, the Vikings uh, admired the evergreens very much, as did the Druids, who had also been conquered by the Vikings. So it was kind of a jambalaya already of Druid, Celtic, pagan, uh, sun return, evergreen celebrations, the holly and the ivy and the wreaths being round, uh, signifying the sun. Anyway, um, 
you, you admired the evergreens because they made it all through the winter, unchanged and seemingly unmoved by all the cold. And so you wanted a little of what they had. You brought them into your house. And um, so Prince Albert had remembered that from his childhood. And he did it when he was um, in England as well. And in 1848, there was a, a published picture of Victoria and Albert in the Illustrated London News, standing in front of their decorated Christmas tree. Well, the next year, everyone in Britain had a decorated Christmas tree. And there were people in Boston who traveled, of course, and knew that people in Britain were doing this. And you know how people are. They love everything the Brits are doing. And so um, Christmas trees became de rigueur in the States as well. In fact, there was a group of Boston business people who thought perhaps it would uh, sober up the holiday a little more to have a, a tree uh, as part of, I don't know why they thought that that would increase the holiness of Christmas, but there you go. And so everybody soon had a decorated tree at Christmas time. Then there was a British businessman who commissioned an artist to draw a card that he then sold, but it was a shilling a piece for the cards, and that was out of the range of most people. And so everybody loved the idea, though, and they asked their children to make cards that they could then send to their friends, and including Queen Victoria and Prince Albert asked their children to make Christmas cards, and so making Christmas cards became a lovely tradition um, in the British Isles. So all around Europe and in Scandinavia, there were different mixtures of uh, pagan, Viking, Druid, Celtic, Christian uh, practices of light return. Everybody wanted to light candles and have evergreen trees, and there were different stories told. Um, St. Nicholas, whose saint's day was December 16th, became associated with the holiday of Christmas. He was a kind and generous soul, a bishop in what is now Turkey, and he was greatly admired. And after his death, there were so many miracles attributed to him as a saint that he was known as Nicholas the Wonder Worker. So um, St. Nicholas at Christmas time was this uh, large bishopy looking man, however you uh, pictured a bishop looking. Um, in uh, the Netherlands, he was called Sinterklaas. It's Santa Claus is kind of a, um, a, an evolution of St. Nicholas. Just you say it enough times, it becomes... Santa Claus, and um, maybe Wassail was involved, I don't know. But Sinterklaas was a, was a Dutch version, and he was a large, uh, stern, loving, saintly-looking, bishop-looking man in, in a bishop's outfit, an alb and a mitre, a red mitre, and a gold crozier, which is a shepherd's staff that's very fancy on top. So he was all red and white and gold, Sinterklaas, and he rode a horse through the sky. What? Odin rode a white horse through the sky. And so you see there's a little bit of Odin and Father Christmas and Sinterklaas all getting jambalayaed up together in our Christmas celebrations. He also carried a book in which he had written uh, who was naughty and who was nice. 
Now, Santa Claus was pictured sometimes in green robes, sometimes in blue, sometimes in brown, um, if, he was, if he was being uh, rooted back in the green man tradition of the Druids, if he was an earth man, he was brown. Sometimes he was a tiny little elf, and sometimes he was a tall, gaunt-looking man. Um, until the night before Christmas by Clement Clark Moore. Everybody loves that poem. And in that poem, he described Santa as his cheeks were like roses, his nose like a cherry, his droll little mouth was drawn up like a bow, the beard on his chin was white as the snow, and he has a, a pipe, and he's got a little belly that shakes like a bowl full of jelly. And this is the Santa that got its hooks in the American imagination. And he wasn't a bishop. In this poem, he was defrocked. And therefore, more accessible to Americans. He was not a bishop anymore. He was just a jolly old elf who, who came down your chimney. Now, he wasn't in, in red. He was dressed all in furs that were sooty. He was dressed all in furs. But he wasn't a church man anymore. The reason he's pictured in red now is because of Coca-Cola. I was just amazed to learn about the power of these images. In the 30s, the Coca-Cola company commissioned an artist to draw a picture of Santa, not a picture of a guy dressed as Santa, but of the real Santa. That's what they wanted, the real Santa. And uh, the artist took as his model a retired Coca-Cola salesman who lived down the street, and he drew him. He was fat and jolly and pink-cheeked and white-bearded, and he dressed him in red, because that was the color of the Coke logo. And for that ad campaign, Santa had a Coke, and he was enjoying it with the cookies. And, um, you know, since then, we've had a Santa all dressed in red. And it looks very natural for him to have a Coke in his hand, doesn't it? Because of that ad campaign that has lasted so long, that's how we picture Santa right now. Now, at Christmas time, we have this uneasy mix of the presents, and, the, and everybody gives presents because the wise men gave Jesus presents. Um, so even from the beginning, there were little presents. Uh, there were not store-bought presents, really, until the Victorian era and afterwards. But you would make little uh, oranges with cloves in them, or you'd sew a little something, or hang a little something on the tree. And this was also a, a Nordic tradition. You'd hang clothes or candy on the tree uh, as a way of giving people what they needed. Um, but the presents, uh, the presents have gotten to be the main thing now. And the, the merriment, I think in many families, the drinking is still the main thing. But in some families, the drinking is not the main thing. Taking care of the poor is also part of it, because they used to come bang on your door. But now there are people who kind of do good once a year. At Christmas, they'll take some turkeys to where the poor people live, like, stay where you are, we're coming to you. Don't bang on my door, because Christmas has moved out, out of the streets and into the home. 
And so people will do good uh, once a year, and they'll feed the hungry, and they'll give to charity. And that's because that's part of Christmas. That's part of the work of Christmas, and everybody knows that. Because Christmas in ancient, ancient DNA is the time when the social order becomes visible by being upended. And it's underscored and undergirded by that upending in Saturnalia because everybody knows what the social order is and that now we're having opposite days, but pretty soon it'll go back to the regular way and everybody kind of signs on to the social order by participating in that. See what I'm saying? Nobody wants the revolution, so they're going to like, okay, you can be the master for five days. How about that? And then we'll be the masters the rest of the time. And you agree to that by letting us serve you a feast and, uh, you know, we'll all just drink together for a week. So that's still in there. Now, um, the least of us in the home are the kids. So the kids are kind of in charge on Christmas. It's topsy-turvy that way. They get to wake up early. They get to wake up mom and dad. They get to run downstairs and open all their presents, unless you're in a family like mine where uh, the order was still parents on top, children down here. Um, But we did get presents, which was great. It was great. But we didn't get to wake up anybody unless it was by singing sweet Christmas carols outside their door uh, after 9 o'clock. But this tension is still so much there, and I see it. And the whole reason I wanted to write this sermon was because there's a billboard on 49th and um, Burnett that just bothered me from the moment it went up. And it's the food bank, which I love. I love the food bank. We help uh, support the food bank. I think they're doing a great job, and I'm very glad they're there. But this billboard bothers me because it says, "'Tis the season to be jolly." And then jolly is crossed out. And underneath is written, "'Feed the hungry.'" So tis the season to feed the hungry. And I'm thinking, why is it either or? It would have taken just as much ink to put a plus sign there. Tis the season to be jolly and feed the hungry. Why do you have to cross out to be jolly? That's Puritan. (laughs) That's the Puritans right there. They crop up. And we feel kind of like, yeah, they're, they're the real grown-ups here. They're in charge. Yes, we should feel, oh, I, I was too jolly. <laughs> I've been merry. And there were people suffering. But I'm thinking, okay, if I write a, an email to a person in Syria who's in the middle of the war and go, I'm giving up being merry this year because you're in a war, they'd be like, Thank you. Uh, I don't understand what good it's doing them. I had this long conversation with God when I was about uh, in my 40s uh, when we were in the Bosnian War. And I was going nuts because of the camps and the suffering and all this. I wasn't enjoying my life anymore. And God, or my inner wisdom, reached down and went, Hey! Are you helping them by being miserable? No. But I just can't believe it's happening. Well, then it said, do something about it. And I was like, I can't. I have two small children. And it was like, right. You can't. You have two small children. So you're going to not enjoy them? 
and you're not going to enjoy your life over somebody else's suffering that you can't do anything about right now? That is crazy. And I went, oh, yeah. It is. Because my children were suffering because mom was having a breakdown over the war in Bosnia. Not an actual breakdown. I've never been that brave. But uh, just like a little mini breakdown where you get to, you know, you soldier on and your face still looks the same. But um, I learned that if your life is going well, you are called to alleviate whatever suffering you can and add to the joy in the world. Add to the joy. If it's your time to add to the joy, bravo. If you don't add to the joy, you're not doing your job. Because you're suffering over somebody else's suffering? What, are you so uh, special that, you're, that they're not able to experience their suffering enough that you have to help them experience suffering? Like, you're in pain, and so I'm going to be in pain too just to, I don't know, make more pain in the world? That's, that's not right. And I don't really understand it all yet, but I'm going to keep preaching about it till I do. Uh, in addition to this billboard, there's a thing on Facebook that a lot of very lovely people have posted. And it's, a, it's from a very sweet, sweet mother kind of site. And it has a Christmas list. And it's got a, you know, what every mother's Christmas list would be. You know, wrap, presents, go shopping, do blah, 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 blah. But it has, everything has a part crossed out on it. Like uh, wrap gifts. You have gifts crossed out. You'll see it on Facebook if you go. Gifts is crossed out. And it's like, wrap your arms around those you love. Well, yeah. But why is it either or? Where's the plus sign? Wrap gifts and wrap your arms around those you love. Why do we have to give up Jolly and Mary in order to do good? Okay, so if I were somehow charged with putting a committee together so that we could solve the problem of hunger in the world, I would not want a committee of humorless, dry, puritanical, self-righteous do-gooders on my committee. Because you know what? Those meetings would be terrible. (laughs) I would want people with merry hearts and jolly attitudes so that we could figure out, because I believe you're smarter when you're jolly, unless by jolly you mean drunk, in which case that's not true. (laughs) So in this Christmas season, let's celebrate this spicy mixture of pagans and the Druids and the Vikings and the Romans and the Christians that make up, and Coke, that make up the Christmas that we have today. And let's be jolly and feed the hungry. Let's wrap presents and wrap our arms around the people we love. Let's find every little false dichotomy that's brought up by American Puritanism. We are far enough from New England, my brothers and sisters, that we have the best chance in Texas of getting rid of Puritanism than they do up there, bless their hearts. Will you please say the words with me by which we extinguish our chalice? We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. 
Remember the way of the wind and breathe and blow. Remember the way of the fire to sparkle and glitter and glow. Remember the way of the water and ebb and flow. Remember the way of the earth and grow. Go in peace. This is a presentation of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, visit our website at www.austinuu.org.